This is an ABC podcast. Welcome to the Philosopher's Zone. Welcome, welcome. This is David Rutledge. And this week we're talking about one of the most important, if not the most important, uh, political philosopher of the 20th century, John Rawls, the Harvard professor who in 1971 published a book titled A Theory of Justice. And really, it's hard to overstate the influence that a theory of justice has had on American public life, first and foremost, but also on the way that any nation fashioned in the liberal democratic tradition has come to understand itself. And I'll just mention in passing that if you're interested in reading A Theory of Justice, it's also worth picking up a copy of Political Liberalism. It's a book that John Rawls published in 1993, and it expands on some of his earlier ideas. And, oh boy, there's a lot to talk about here. The Philosopher's Zone could easily do a 10-part series on a theory of justice. But very simply put, it's a book that sets out to establish the rules for a fair and just society. And the word fair is important here in the sense of fair play, because Rawls conceives of a just society as one in which the rules are observed in much the same way that we observe the rules of a game, and for much the same reasons. This gamification of political life has various theoretical advantages, but my guest this week believes that it also has significant practical disadvantages. In fact, he believes that the slow-motion car crash that we're all witnessing in American politics and society today provides a handy illustration of the shortcomings of Rawls's ideas, to the point where he wonders if maybe John Rawls is a philosopher whose time has passed. Charles Blattberg is Professor of Political Philosophy at the University of Montreal. He's been on the Philosopher's Zone before, and it's a great pleasure to have him back. Charles, welcome to the program. Well, thank you. Now, Rawls's theory of justice rests on two key principles. So let's begin there. What are those two principles? It's important that for Rawls, the first principle is realized before you even begin to consider uh, looking at the second one. Now, that first principle is the familiar one to liberals, namely that we ought to respect citizens' basic liberties. The second principle is that we should ensure equal opportunity among citizens and also accept inequalities between them when it comes to the distribution of wealth, only when it benefits the least fortunate. Uh, In his later work in in the book, uh, Political Liberalism, You could say he took a bit of a step back in that uh, he recognized that liberals that in general that will agree with him uh, perhaps will only come to accept the first principle. And and he called that the essential principle of political liberalism. And the interpretation of that is in a certain way is what he calls justice as fairness. And he still believed in the theory from the first book, uh, that of justice as fairness, But he came to recognize that it had to be understood in a particular political way. And that's something very key to get a sense of what he's on about overall, because uh, by political, he doesn't just mean politics and uh, what we normally understand by it. Uh, But essentially, it has to do with the distinction between what is involved in the practices in and around the basic structure of the state on the one hand, and those practices that reflect our everyday comprehensive beliefs on the other, including our our religious or our anti-religious beliefs, uh, and again, our different ethnic views and so on. Those, he said, we have to recognize as distinct from the political, especially because 
They're so different. They're often in tension with each other. Uh, I mentioned religion. That's an obvious example. And Rawls came to appreciate that uh, there is no way we could achieve a stable liberal society if people kept uh, bringing in considerations that are related to their comprehensive views. Uh, those kind of deep beliefs that people, of course, uh, believe are, are true are, are just the kind of things that Rawls felt we have to set aside in order to achieve a consensus on the rule book for the liberal governance of our political lives. Right. So Rawls is saying that the fact that people have different values, different cultural backgrounds, different moral codes, that all of that gets left at the door when you enter the political realm, or, or it should do. And Rawls believed that anyone who could set aside their own particular aims and attachments would just sort of naturally agree with his principles of justice, which is interesting because Rawls has been criticised for paying insufficient attention to pluralism. Is that his justification, that his principles of justice are perfectly rational and that any rational agent should be able to recognise that? Well, that's certainly one of the justifications. In fact, in the first book, uh, there's two paths to uh, his theory. So two ways you could say that he ended up constructing a, a rule book for politics. And the first one is the one you just described. Uh, he, he refers to it as the idea of the original position. And it involves a, a kind of thought experiment where he says, uh, what we need to do is ask ourselves how we would look at the world uh, if we were ignorant of our particular characteristics. Once again, our, our religious beliefs, uh, our ethnicity, the language we speak, our gender, and so on. What we need to do, he says, is step behind a veil of ignorance, so to speak, and imagine we're looking at the world from that perspective, and then ask ourselves what would be the rules that we would want to adopt, given that we don't know who we are in particular. And so in that sense, we couldn't choose the rules where we can expect to benefit the most given our particular beliefs or talents or, or attitudes towards the world. So in a sense, you, to return to the game analogy, he's asking the question, well, let's say everybody has to play a single game, in this case, the game of politics. Uh, well, we want a game that's fair to everyone, and, and yet we know that you know, different people have different talents. Uh, we don't want a game that's rigged in order that people with certain talents uh, will obviously do better than others. So what would be the game that everybody would play and how will we determine it? Well, his answer is uh, a purely rational person will choose certain basic goods, which can then be reformulated into abstract principles that as long as they are unaware of their particular characteristics, uh, they're going to end up choosing a rule book that is fair to everyone. And, and it just so happens that that is the rules, those two principles that make up his uh, vision of justice as fairness. So that's one of the paths to the rule book. There's another one, and it's the process that involves what he calls achieving a reflective equilibrium. So this one is much less universal. Rather, Rawls says now, let's start not from theory, but from practice. Let's start from where we are uh, in our everyday lives within already uh, liberal democratic societies. And recognizing that 
the societies have certain principles that underlie their institutions, the political philosopher now is not supposed to sort of create the set of principles and so the theory of justice uh, from this abstract original position, but rather by reformulating uh, the principles that already underlie our institutions, but in a much more systematically coherent way. If we return to the analogy of the game, I like to think of it as, you know, imagine you're in a park somewhere and you stumble on some people who are playing a game that you've never seen before. Uh, and so you ask them, well, what, what are the rules to your game? And they say, well, you know, we, we've never really formulated them. We've never written out a rule book. So what do you do? You, you offer to do it for them. And so you, you watch uh, the game for a while and you write down what you see and you try and uh, determine what are the rules of the game that they're actually playing. And then you return to them and say, you know, here roughly is the rule book that I have. What do you, what do you think? Does this make sense of what you're doing? And there'll be some back and forth there. You might reformulate the rules again. And it's this back and forth uh, movement that's key to systematizing the principles or the rules such that the hope is that you'll reach an, what he again calls a reflective equilibrium, this sort of uh, position uh, which brings together uh, practice and theory. Uh, now you've, you've ended up with a, a rule book. It just so happens to be the, the very same theory, the very same rules uh, from the first path, that of the original position. However, since we're starting with practice and a given society, uh, Rawls admits that he can't claim this to have universal validity. And so he says, well, these are the rules just for uh, liberal democratic societies. Other decent societies that are not liberal, they're going to have different rules. But these are the ones that make the most sense of how we should be living our lives. Right. And so we're back here to the metaphor of the game. I'd like to turn to that here because you you have a really interesting critique of Rawls that we're going to get onto. And it's based on the contention that even though Rawls appears to be using the game as an analogy, the reality is that justice as conceived by Rawls actually is a game in a sense. So, so let's get into this by looking at first just what a game is. In your view, what is it about a game that that situates it outside the sphere of, of the rest of life, of practical concerns? Well, you're right. I mean, I, I distinguish very much between what it means to play a game on the one hand and what it means to live sort of everyday practical life on the other. Now, it seems to me that what we have when it comes to games are two essential things. We have, at least when it comes to formal games, we have those sets of systematic rules, which again have to be systematic because if they don't fit together in a fully coherent way, well, obviously we'll have a problem when there ends up being a disagreement over a particular event on the ice rink or, or, or the rugby field. So, you know, if it so happens that there's a rule on page seven of the rule book that comes into conflict with another rule on page 11, well, then the referee uh, won't know what to do. He'll have to bend the rules to some degree, uh, maybe even uh, break a rule in order to make a ruling. So it's very important that the rules be systematically unified. Uh, but more than that, the rules also have to be affirmed in a certain way. And this is the key to making them other than practical. Essentially, we have to approach them in a manner that treats them as uh, good for their own sake rather than for the sake of our interests. 
it's why when you ask at the end of the day why you need to follow a particular rule in a particular game, ultimately the only answer you can give is just because. You know that's how the game is played, and if you want to have fun, uh, those are the rules you need to respect. So it just so happens that both of those criteria are present in Rawls's theory. He believes that, as we've seen, uh, the theory of justice which has two principles, uh, they need to be uh, interlocked in a systematically unified way, so there's no chance of them coming to conflict with each other. And he also tells us repeatedly that we need to adopt these rules, rules of justice, uh, for their own sake, not for the sake of our interests or some other modus uh, vivendi. And when I look at those two uh, characteristics, it strikes me very much that he's offered us a vision of a of a kind of game. And that also goes very much with his idea that a conception of justice must be political or separate from our everyday comprehensive metaphysical views of life, those that we believe deep down to be true. Uh, Rawls says, well, no, we, we need to look at the rules that are governing politics as reasonable uh, whether or not they are true. We need to be agnostic about their truth uh, because that's the only way we're ever going to uh, agree to them, have a consensus, and so therefore unify as a citizenry and achieve the kind of order that we need in our very diverse society. The problem with all this, it seems to me, is that it fails to take politics seriously enough. I don't believe that when people get involved in politics, when their values come into conflict, uh, they can look at them and be willing to subject them to principles that are just like the rules of a game. Politics is so serious uh, just because it's essential to our practical lives. And that means that we can't separate it from our deeper beliefs. Uh, this is, of course, why oftentimes our, our conflicts are irreconcilable, but that doesn't mean that we need to give up on trying to reconcile them. It, it simply means uh, that we have to accept them for what they are, uh, take them seriously, and uh, see if we can uh, get along by engaging in dialogue. And so that, in a nutshell, is my alternative to Rawls's approach. When it comes to a conflict of values between citizens, I think citizens shouldn't be turning to uh, some neutral authority, whether it be a referee in, in a game or a Supreme Court in politics, in order to tell us what to do. Rather, as much as possible, we should try and resolve our conflicts uh, with dialogue but for that to work, we really have to take the values seriously, uh, and we have to approach politics earnestly, and that means treating it as anything other than a game. There's also the question of why we should be attached to the principles of justice as Rawls sets them out. I mean, if, if he's saying that we should adopt his theory of justice for its own sake, in the same way that we adopt the rules of a game for their own sake... That seems like a weak kind of attachment, especially given that in a game, I guess the payoff is is fun or the satisfaction of a certain competitive impulse. 
justice and politics doesn't necessarily offer those payoffs. Why does Rawls think that we should, or, or where does Rawls see us ideally, you know, basing our, grounding our attachment to his principles of justice? Well, you know, he he is a philosopher, and and so attraction to abstract principles is, I guess. Uh, sort of a professional hazard. I think that's the problem, that there's a failure to recognize that ordinary people do not see their values as the kinds of things that can be captured in these abstract ways, and that to impose those kinds of principles on them, if anything, that can create a, a backlash, a sense of alienation, just because people are being told to have a kind of distance from what they believe deeply. And that alienation can lead to some terrible things. Uh, we've obviously seen the rise of populism in the Western world of late, which I think is fed by a certain alienation. Uh, partly the causes are, are anything but philosophical, they're economic and others. But I don't think that this Rawlsian approach to political justice has helped. If anything, I, I think it's made things worse by, ironically, making people feel less attached to precisely the values that liberals believe people should be affirming. And that's why I'm personally more sympathetic to those perfectionist brands of liberalism, uh, those that recognize that uh, liberalism is one view of the good life amongst others, uh, and it this is involved in our everyday beliefs and our other comprehensive values, and that when there turns out to be a conflict over them, we have no choice but to bring all of that to bear, rather than try and separate part of it off and join together just as the players of a game do when they agree to follow a particular rulebook. On Radio National and the ABC Listen app, this is The Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. This week, we're talking about John Rawls, the American philosopher whose 1971 book, A Theory of Justice, has been celebrated as setting out some of the most important and influential articulations of political liberalism. My guest is Charles Blatberg from the University of Montreal, and he's offering a critical take on Rawls and his legacy. So we've been talking about the deficiencies and the dangers of politics conducted as a closed interlocking system, what you call a monistic view. But then there are also deficiencies and dangers that attend a pluralist vision where everyone brings their own values and their interests to the table and the result is negotiation and compromise and often not a lot getting done to anyone's particular satisfaction. So what might a political philosophy look like that successfully navigates between the downsides of pluralism on one hand and the downsides of Rawls's monistic closed system on the other? Well, I have a kind of, I guess, slogan uh, for the, or at least maxim for the approach that I would suggest. And you can already gather from what I've been uh, saying that I think that when faced with a conflict of values, uh, we should start with conversation, conversation first. Uh, if that doesn't work, if that breaks down, negotiation second, and regretfully, if good faith negotiations uh, don't work out, force third. It seems to me uh, that, in fact, Rawls's approach would fall into the third category. Uh, I mean, it's ultimately 
an approach where, as we've seen, uh, an institution like the judiciary, backed up by the police, is going to decide uh, for us how our conflicts should be resolved. I should qualify here that Rawls himself doesn't emphasize uh, the judiciary as much as other neutralist liberal philosophers, uh, such as uh, Ronald Dworkin, a, a legal philosopher of the 20th century, uh, did, for example. It's those like Dworkin who believe that, you know, when there is a, a conflict, we should be appealing to the Supreme Court. Uh, lawyers should be pleading their cases much like team captains do uh, before the referee in a game or a sport. Uh, Rawls instead recommends that we engage in what he calls public reason, which is the kind of reasoning that Supreme Court justices engage in. However, every citizen is invited to participate in that process uh, rather than just an elite uh, of judges. The problem with that is I just don't see it uh, as realistic psychologically. Uh, if you are engaged in a partisan competitive uh, practice uh, normally, and then for whatever reason, you've had to suspend the game because there's a disagreement over the rules. I don't see how citizens can suddenly switch to a, a neutral attitude and deal with their conflicts that way. Regardless, uh, I see the whole process as uh, uh, an example of uh, force, uh, not physical violent force, of course, but nevertheless, as a non-dialogical approach, uh, because the pleading that's done before, let's say, Supreme Court justices is ultimately, it seems to me, a non-dialogical uh, form of talking. Uh, you don't have the symmetry uh, between interlocutors that you do in a normal dialogue, the, the back and forth, because obviously the judges are there to adhere to the pre-formulated law, and uh, they'll ask questions of lawyers uh, but at the end of the day, they go off alone, deliberate, and then return and hand down uh, their ruling. So that lack of symmetry and, and lack of back and forth uh, suggests to me that we have a, ultimately a monological approach in the sense, not that there's one person only involved, but in the sense that it's only moving in, in one direction. Uh, whereas both conversation and negotiation, uh, I see as forms of dialogue, because obviously uh, the parties involved need to exchange either demands when it comes to negotiations or reasons when it comes to a conversation, and that they need to go back and forth. Uh, it really is dialogical uh, in the ancient Greek sense of dia, one translation of which means between, right? So you have to have at least two parties uh, in order for there to be a, a between and so to genuinely speak of dialogue. So in a nutshell, I think before we turn to uh, either the good faith negotiations of a pluralist or when those don't work uh, to the kind of force backed up by the police that we have with Rawls, we should be at least attempting to resolve our conflicts as citizens with conversation. And I think simply that is going to be the best way of dealing with many of the challenges uh, that we face uh, nowadays. Uh, I don't see how we would have a hope of resolving them uh, any other way. 
Well, Charles, I want to finish with a question that I think in, in some ways we might have already answered, you know, in, in piecemeal fashion throughout the course of this conversation. But I mean, what we're talking about really, really begs to be put into the context of what is happening in the USA at the moment. This, this situation where we have a country divided and, and one of the major fault lines, I think, is this notion on one hand that what we need in America more than ever, now more than ever, is is to rebuild trust and a sense of common purpose in American life. And this positions Rawls as an essential philosopher for the times. And then on the other hand, the notion that America is a country divided into two warring camps that see each other as existential threat. And it's too late for any hope that we're all going to come together around the campfire. It's, it's time to pick sides, essentially, which positions Rawls perhaps as a philosopher whose time has passed. Now, Rawls died 20 years ago. He most likely couldn't have envisaged the predicament that America finds itself in today. What can we take from his work, do you think, that speaks usefully to that predicament? Well, uh, I have to say not much. Uh, I'm obviously very critical of this game analogy, uh, which I think goes further than, than even an analogy. And it seems to me that Precisely because of the problems that you've put your finger on in a, in a country like the States, we should be doing anything but appealing to this kind of uh, justice as fairness. In fact, it seems to me that the problems that we're dealing with can be uh, described as part of a larger uh, process, which I call aestheticization. And by that, I, I mean not merely the appreciation of, of beauty, but to me, the aesthetic as a dimension of reality is where we go when we want to enjoy things. And, and that can come from appreciating beauty, of course, but also uh, from play, also when we fantasize and when we put on shows or, or spectacles. Uh, these, to me, are all different modes of the aesthetic. And I think we need to distinguish between uh, aesthetics on the one hand and what I've been calling uh, practical life on the other, where the point is to fulfill our, our interests, not approach things in a disinterested way. And the problem, it seems to me, it, the kinds of problems that you've mentioned are different forms of asceticization. Many people have referred to what's been going on in the United States as a the rise of a post-truth uh, era. Uh, and we do see that with uh, the increasing popularity of conspiracy theories and the extreme partisanship that I uh, just referred to. Well, what are conspiracy theories, if not in their own way, uh, sorts of games, uh, puzzle-solving games, uh, games that are also fantastical, so they bring the fantasy to bear and also are spectacles in a sense. Uh, conspiracy theorists love to show off the results, their you know the solutions to the to the puzzle. And partisanship, as I've already been describing, is a big part of uh, competitive games. And once again, this is something that we have too much of. And I think it's all wrapped up in this uh, growing aestheticization that we're seeing coming out of the, the United States. Uh, so. Sadly, I, I, I'm unable to say that Rawls can help us uh, with these kinds of challenges, precisely because I, I think that his way of thinking about politics makes things worse. Uh, by emphasizing the idea that justice is fairness and so the kind of justice that's relevant to games, he is failing to take politics seriously enough. 
and just contributing to the aestheticization of our lives. And Charles Blattberg is Professor of Political Philosophy at the University of Montreal. His writing on John Rawls is just terrific, and we're going to put links to a couple of recent papers on the Philosopher's Zone website, as well as a link to my previous conversation with Charles on this program, where we talked about conspiracy theories and why people like them. That was an excellent episode, and I uh, encourage you to go and check it out. That's the Philosopher's Zone. You can find us at the RN website or the ABC Listen app. And thanks so much for your company this week. I'm David Rutledge. Bye for now.